The Bible places a great emphasis upon hearing. In Exodus, we read that the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the crying out of my children in Egypt because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about them. In Deuteronomy, we find the words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Following Jesus' parable of the sower, the Savior said, Be careful then how you hear. At the conclusion of all seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus writes, To him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All throughout the Bible, there's a great emphasis upon hearing. Biblical hearing always implies obedience. You and I ought not to handle the holy things of God and remain unchanged. Because biblical listening must always lead to biblical living. It's not that we listen just to be informed. It's not that we listen just to be inspired. But we listen to be transformed from the inside out. Biblical listening always implies biblical living. I think this is one of the greatest challenges of the church today. The greatest challenge of the church is not belief in the Word of God. There are a lot of people who believe that this is the Word of God. The greatest challenge in the church today is not access to the Word of God, for the Bible remains the number one seller year in and year out. The greatest challenge in the church today is not even knowledge of the Word of God, even though you and I would have to agree that biblical literacy is at an all-time low. I declare to you this morning that the greatest challenge in the church today is obedience to the Word of God, right listening that leads to right living. This morning, I want us to travel back to Thyatira. It's one of those ancient cities in Asia Minor. And today, I want us to discover that tremendous truth that our God is patient, but he's not a pushover. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to take it. Turn to Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. This morning, I want you to hear the word of God. Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence, the public reading of God's holy word. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance and that you're now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, 
I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give him the morning star. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. This is the fourth of seven letters that Jesus penned to seven churches. This is the hinge letter. There are three letters that precede it. There are three letters that follow it. This is the longest correspondence that Jesus has with any of the seven churches. Thyatira was the smallest of the seven cities listed there in Asia Minor in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. It was a small town, yet it was comprised of people that were hard workers. They worked from morning until night. Recent archaeologists have discovered numerous inscriptions in Thyatira to various guilds. A guild was like a a labor union. Not only was commerce revolved around the guilds, but so were politics. There were numerous guilds in Thyatira, the Baker's Guild, the Leather Guild, the Tanner Guild, the Silversmith Guild, the Fine Linen Guild, just to name a handful. There were numerous guilds, and these guilds literally ran the town. This is not the only place that Thyatira is mentioned in sacred scripture. You may recall in Acts chapter 16, it's the Apostle Paul who travels to Philippi, goes outside the city gate, hoping to find a place of prayer there. He does meet a few individuals. One of them was a lady named Lydia. She was a dealer in fine purple cloth, and she was from Thyatira. We don't know exactly why she's in Philippi. Maybe she is broadening her business. Maybe she is going there just to get some things to import into her own town of Thyatira. We don't know. But Luke does tell us that she was from this ancient city. Jesus identifies himself to the church in Thyatira. This was a small community. We can only infer that it's probably a small church. Don't know for sure. But Jesus says to this church in Thyatira, I am the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, feet like burnished bronze. I've told you before that Jesus always identifies himself in a specific way to a specific church for a specific reason. Now, certainly, the words of Jesus echo what he said earlier in Revelation chapter 1. It really seems as if he has lifted out of the description that John has for us in Revelation chapter 1 of Jesus being the Son of God with eyes like blazing fire, with feet like burnished bronze, just lifting that out of chapter 1 and putting it here in chapter 2. But let me also remind you that in Thyatira, even though the people weren't all that religious, That city did house an important temple. It was the temple to Apollo. If you know anything about Roman mythology, you know that Apollo was the son of Zeus. So what is Jesus saying? He is saying to that city, he's saying to that congregation, he's saying to that town, the 
Lord of this city is not the son of Zeus, but the Lord of this city is the son of God. Jesus is the mighty warrior. Jesus is the righteous ruler. Jesus is the king of all kings. And Jesus is the Lord of all lords. It's not Apollo. It's not a son of Zeus. It is the son of God. It is Jesus himself. For Jesus has jurisdiction over every inch of the planet. There's no place where he's out of bounds. He's in charge of every city. He's the God of that city city. He's the God of this city. He's the God of every city. Jesus wants the church to know, I got you in my hand because this city belongs to the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. His eyes are like burning fire. All throughout the Bible, fire was the symbol of purity. So Jesus is making a comparison. If you look into the eyes of Jezebel, who he will identify Later in the letter, Jezebel has eyes of seduction, not the Savior. The Savior has eyes of purity. He has eyes of holiness. You look into the eyes, it's the window into the soul. You look into the eyes of Jezebel, and at the heart of Jezebel is seduction. You look into the eyes of Jesus, and at the heart of Jesus is pure holiness. He has eyes like blazing fire. He has feet like burnished bronze. We are the hands and feet of Christ. As Jesus tramples out all the impurity in our lives, in our congregations, in our culture, so we as the people of God ought to be the hands and feet of Christ. Jesus identifies himself as the only true God of the universe. He's son of God with blazing eyes and burnished feet of bronze. He says to the church, I know about your deeds, love, faith, service, and perseverance. Now, once again, we understand that when Jesus says, I know, he means I know exhaustively, I know entirely. It's not just a working knowledge, but he has thorough understanding of who you are and what you're doing. So he says to the church, I know your deeds. That word deeds means not only your activity and your action, but also the attitude behind your activity and your actions. I know all your decisions. I know all of your devotion. I know your deeds. I know everything that you're doing. And Jesus would say to the church of Thyatira, you're doing a lot of good. In fact, in many ways, you're doing more good than bad. I know what you're doing for the Lord. I know your love. The love in Thyatira was both vertical and horizontal. For they loved the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They loved their neighbor as themselves. They were people of love. They loved God with every fiber inside of them, and they loved one another with everything they could muster. They had legitimate, genuine love. He says, I know your faith. Faith is taking God at his word. It's trusting God regardless of the outcome. Jesus understands this is a small church in a small town. It's a tough go. Yet these individuals had faith. They had faith in God that God was in charge of all things. I know your faith, Jesus says. I know your service. That's the word for ministry. I can well imagine that even though this church may have been small in size, they had ministry to the entire family. They probably had a great preschool ministry and children's ministry and student ministry. And their senior adult ministry was better than bar none. It was better than anything you can imagine. And they had a choir that could call down the heavens uh, they had a small group ministry that was effective. Jesus says, <clears throat> I know your ministry. I know your service. He also says, I know your perseverance. 
I know your stick to I know that you don't quit. You don't give up. In fact, <clears throat> Jesus says, you're doing more now than you did at first. This is the opposite of what Jesus says to the Ephesian church. You remember the indictment to the Ephesian church is you have forsaken your first love. The remedy, repent and start doing the things you did at first. What does he say here to the church at Thyatira? You're now doing more than you even did at first. They are the opposite of the Ephesians. So Jesus says, you got a lot of things going for you. I know your deeds. I know your love. I know your faith. I know your ministry. I know your perseverance. And in fact, you're doing more now for me than you've ever done before. Could Jesus say this of you today? Could Jesus say this of me today? Could Jesus say of us today, hey, listen, I know all that you're doing. I know your deeds and I know the love that you have for me and for one another. And I know your faith for you're holding on to that regardless of the outcome. And I know your ministry that you have and all the things that you're doing uh, in, this, in the church and outside the church and the mission trips that you go on. And I know your perseverance and you're not stopping. In fact, would Jesus say of us today, you're doing more for Christ today than you've ever done. Could Jesus say that? He certainly says it of Thyatira. Apparently, this is a church that had not faded or flatlined. This is a church that did not fizzle out. This is a church that was on a trajectory of doing more in the future than they ever did in their past. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty good. That sounds pretty good to be more faithful to God in the future than you are in the present. And what you're doing in the present is greater than anything you've done in the past. I don't know about you, but those are high marks that Jesus gives to the church. Nevertheless, I have this against you. Now, if you've been with us over the last four weeks, you almost expect that line, don't you? Jesus uses the same pattern in all these letters. He talks about the things that the church does well, and then he turns on a dime and says, nevertheless, I have this against you. In fact, even as I was going through all the litany of things that they did well, I could see on the looks on your faces, you were just waiting for the other shoe to drop. You knew it was coming. You knew the nevertheless was soon on the horizon. Nevertheless, I have this against you because you're almost conditioned for it. But I want to submit to you that that in and of itself is healthy. After all, you don't go to a doctor just for the doctor to tell you all the things that you have going well in your body. I mean, if you've got sickness, infection, disease, cancer, you need that doctor to tell you, don't you? You don't go just for him to say, well, let me give you a list of all the things that are well, healthy, and moving right in your body. But you've got this cancer over here, but we're not going to talk about that. We're just going to talk about what you do well and what's healthy in your body. No, you say, no, 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 doc. I need to know about the cancer because you go to a doctor because you want him or her to tell you where the infection is. At the same way, you don't need a coach just to tell you all the things that you do well. If you want to be driven to excellence, you need a coach who's going to challenge you in the areas where you need to improve. In the same way as a teacher. You don't need a teacher just to tell you everything that you already know. You need to be tested. 
You need to be evaluated. And many times we learn more once we're tested and we get the paperback with all the red marks, realizing what we did not know, nor did we understand. And we sit there and go, wow, there's a lot of things I need to learn. So every good teacher, every good coach, every good doctor knows how to tell you what's right, but also what's going wrong. Jesus is the greatest doctor on the planet. Jesus is the best coach you could ever imagine. Jesus is the most magnificent teacher you've ever had because Jesus says, these are the things you do well. Nevertheless, I have this against you. There's some of you, Jesus says, in the church at Thyatira, and you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. I don't know if that was her real name. I don't know if that's the name on her birth certificate. I don't know if that's what her mama called her, but I do know that's what Jesus called her. Jesus said, you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. She's in your midst. She calls herself a prophetess. Yet she's leading my servants away from me and into immorality and idolatry. They are committing sexual sin and they're eating food sacrificed to idols. Now here is some keen insight into the obvious. But friends, if anybody ever calls you a Jezebel, that is not a compliment. Nowhere is Jezebel ever described in a complimentary way. In fact, do you know the story of the original Jezebel? She's an Old Testament wicked woman. She married Ahab. Ahab probably is the most pathetic king in Israel's history. Single-handedly, Jezebel introduced Baal worship into the life of Israel. When Ahab married her, he allowed her to import all of her uh, false doctrine, all of her paganism, all of her Baal worship. She introduced that not just to Ahab, the king of Israel, but also to all the people of Israel. Jezebel hated God. She didn't like God's people. And she really didn't like God's prophets. There was one prophet that she hated more than anyone else. His name, Elijah. She despised Elijah because Elijah was always a truth teller. He would always declare. You remember the showdown that Elijah had on Mount Carmel? They went on top of this mountain and Elijah believes himself to be the only prophet of God left. And so he says, we're going to have a showdown. We're going to prove once and for all who the real God is. Stop wavering between two opinions. Either God is God or Baal is God, but you can't have a sovereign Savior who is uh, one and the same if they're both. They've got to be one or the other. So we've got to prove. So he draws the line in the sand and he goes up against 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. And the Bible describes them as eating at Jezebel's table, which means they're on the payroll of Jezebel. These 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, 850 false prophets, they're simply doing the bidding of the one who's, who's, uh, who's uh, paying their ticket, Jezebel herself. And Elijah stands up and he says, we're going to have a test. We will both construct an altar and then you call down fire from Baal. I will call down fire from my God. Whoever answers in fire, he is the true God. Whoever answers first, I'll let you go first. You go ahead. You go. 
And so they built this beautiful altar to Baal. And then uh, the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, they began to pray. They began to call out to their false, deaf, mute, dumb God. They called out to Baal and Baal didn't answer. They called out for hours and Baal did not answer. They kept calling out and calling. It got to be noontime and Elijah began to taunt them. That's the scripture way of saying he began to have some sanctimonious smack talk. He began to talk at them. He said, hey, maybe your God's asleep. Maybe your God has gone fishing. Maybe your God is busy, which is really an idiom that means maybe your God is going to the bathroom. Maybe he just can't hear you. Maybe you got to call a little bit louder. Maybe he'll come back in just a few minutes. You just keep on. Maybe you need to cut yourself. Maybe you need to dance a little bit uh, uh, larger. Maybe you need to sing a little bit louder. You just go ahead and and so they began to cut themselves. They began to gyrate. They began to dance around. And Baal didn't answer. You know why? Because Baal doesn't exist. He's a dead God. He's a deaf God. He's a mute God. He's not a real God. They went all day long, crying out to their dumb God, slashing their wrists, dancing around, doing all kinds of gyrations. And eventually they just got exhausted. Then it came time for Elijah to build his altar. He got 12 stones, gathered them around. He took the bull for sacrifice, cut it up, laid it on the altar. And then he stacked the odds against God. He took four large jars, filled them with water. said, I want you to douse the altar and the animal sacrifice on the altar. They did that not once, twice, but three times. Twelve large jars of water. Elijah had dug a trench around the altar, and the trench was full of water. He stacked the odds against God. If you're going to call down fire, the last thing you need is water. Elijah steps up, and he prays. And in so many words, he simply says this, God, do your thing. God, you be God. God, show yourself strong and mighty, and God, prove on this day that you are the one true God, not only of Israel, but of all the world. And all of a sudden, fire fell from heaven. It burned up the sacrifice. It licked up all the water around uh, the altar, even in the trench. And everybody declared, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. And Elijah said, quick, I want you to capture the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. Those 850 uh, false prophets were captured and killed and slaughtered. And everybody declared, the Lord is the true God. God is God. And everybody carried Elijah off the battlefield because he was victorious. Jezebel got word of this. She wasn't on Mount Carmel, but she sent Elijah a text message. And the text message read something like this. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow you're not dead. That little text message from that wicked woman caused Elijah to spiral down into deep depression. You think, how can you go from the mountaintop to the valley so quickly? How can you go from being victorious and proving that God is God and then allowing a nasty woman to somehow cause you to go into a tailspin of depression? How is that possible? I'll tell you how it's possible because Elijah believed Jezebel would do it. He thought himself to be the only prophet. 
He thought himself to be as good as done. He thought his goose was cooked. And so he ran and he ran. Why do I tell you that story? Because Jezebel was a wicked woman. Jesus says to the church at Thyatira, you tolerate Jezebel. I don't know if that was really her name, but that's what Jesus calls her. Although the Bible, a name is important. It signifies character, essence. It reveals what's on the inside. And Jesus calls them like he sees them because the way he sees them is the way they are. So Jesus looks into the eyes of Jezebel, eyes of seduction, and he says, this woman is a Jezebel. There's somebody in the church, Jesus says, at Thyatira, and she is declaring herself to be a prophetess. She's leading my servants away, enticing them into sexual immorality and into idolatry, worshiping something other than the one true God. Now, this was a big problem in the ancient church. Have you noticed that? I mean, we've only gone through four letters, and a couple of them at least have referenced or made mention of the sexual perversion problem in the ancient church. Whether it's the practices of the Nicolaitans, whether it's following the doctrine of Balaam, whether it's uh, being like a Jezebel, whatever you call it, Jesus is saying that there is a permeating problem in my people in the ancient church. They've got a sexual ethic issue. Time has passed. I'm glad we fixed that one. I'm glad that's no longer a problem in the present-day church. You sense the sarcasm dripping from my lips, don't you? Because it's an issue for every, every generation, any church, and Jesus is consistent and he is adamant that he is passionate about purity. So Jesus says, I've given this woman time to repent but she's unwilling. Now that's very gracious for Jesus to give her time to repent. The only remedy for sin is repentance. We've said that before. We're going to say it again before this study is over. But the only remedy to your sin and mine is to repent. If you're with us last Sunday, you understand that repentance is literally turning your back on sin. It's doing a 180. It's turning away from sin and towards the Savior. And Jesus consistently says the only way uh, to have a remedy against this thing is to repent. Whatever the sin is, whether it's sexual in nature, whether it's non-sexual in nature, the only way you deal with the dirty deeds of your disobedience is to repent, do a 180, turn your back on it, confess it unto the Lord and turn away from it to trust and to turn in Jesus, our Savior. And Jesus says there's no sin that's too gross for grace. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful? Even to the Jezebel, Jesus says, I have given her time to repent. That's wonderful. God is so gracious. Jesus is a merciful Messiah. And he says to anyone and to everyone, regardless of your sin, I give you time to repent. Don't ever mistake God's patience as weakness. Just because Christ is patient with you, just because Christ is patient with me and his church, just because God is patient with us, don't misunderstand that as that he is a pushover or that he is weak. 
Nothing could be further from the truth. There comes a day when God gives people over to their sin. If they persist in their sin, if they're defiant about being repentant, then eventually Jesus will give them over to their sin. This is what's happening to Jezebel in Thyatira. I've given her time to repent, but she is unwilling. If she had been willing, Jesus would have forgiven her, clearly, automatically, no questions asked. Had she repented of sin, Jesus would have forgiven her, but she was unwilling. How much time did he give her? I don't know. How much time does God give you? Did he, did he give her a, a couple of weeks to repent? Did he give her a few months to repent? Was it a year or two that she persisted in disobedience and, and God just kept drawing her to the church, hearing the word of God, giving her an opportunity to respond to the gospel, to repent of her sin? Did it happen for a year or two? Was it a decade or more? I don't know. How long has God been patient with you, my friend? The fact that you're here today is evidence that our God is gracious. Because you're here today hearing this and you, in essence, are being given another opportunity to repent. And that is demonstration of the grace of God. God is so gracious to us. He gives us chance upon chance to repent and know how stupid we must be to be hard-hearted and to leave this sanctuary without repenting of our sin and saying, Lord, I agree with you that I'm in the wrong and you're right and I confess and I need your help so I don't do it again. How silly and stupid we must be if we persist in our sin. God is patient, but he's not a pushover. God is patient, but he's not a pushover. If I was an Old Testament prophet, preacher, I would have a one-word sermon. I would stand up and I would say, repent, and then I'd go sit down. We'd offer the invitation. Now, some of you may welcome a one-word sermon. I mean, I understand that. I get that. But, but in essence, that's the message of that's always been of God oh, through the Old Testament, through the New Testament. It's repent, repent, repent. And that's, it's the same remedy. And Jesus says, this is the only thing that will work. And Jezebel had been given time to repent. You have been given time to repent. I have been given time to repent. But Jezebel was given time, yet she was unwilling. God is patient, but he's not a pushover. Payday comes someday. So he gave her over to her sin. What did that look like? Notice the intensity of the judgment. Jesus says, I will throw her on a bed of suffering. Those who commit adultery with her will experience suffering that is greatly intense. That, that word that's translated uh, Great intense is the word tribulation. So Jesus says, I will throw her on a bed of suffering. And anyone who commits adultery with her and is unrepentant, I will up the ante. I will, I will cause even greater suffering. Why? Why would Jesus do that? Twofold. Number one, he is holy. He is a holy God. He cannot just sweep sin under the carpet. But secondly, he is, 
he is attempting to woo us back unto him. So he increases the suffering. And then Jesus says, ultimately, I will send a plague. And what's the plague? He says, it's the killing of her children. Now, none of that is unjustifiable. None of that is cruel and unusual punishment. Because reality is, because Jesus is so holy, the first moment we sin, he ought to zap us dead. But he doesn't. Why? Because he's gracious. Because he wants to woo you. Because he wants to draw you unto himself. And if you, my friend, persist in disobedience, there'll come a time when he will be patient with you and patient with you. But eventually, if you're unwilling, he'll just give you over to your sin. And even in the giving over, there's a graciousness to that. Because in the giving over, there is a, uh, a level of suffering where he says, I'll throw her on the bed of suffering. And then those who uh, engage with her in that uh, revelry, then they will suffer intensely. And then I will ultimately, if they're still unrepentant, unwilling to repent, I will send a plague. It'll be the death of their children. Now, when you hear that, you think to yourself, how do I process that? Because it is true that sometimes we suffer just because it's part and parcel of the human condition. Sometimes we suffer because all people suffer. Sometimes we suffer intensely because all people suffer intensely. And sometimes our children die, and that's not a plague. But other times, it is a form of discipline. Other times, it is a form of judgment. And we've got to know the difference between the two. And we've got to have the wisdom of Solomon to be able to decipher. Here, Jesus is clearly telling us the reason I'm doing all this is because I'm a holy God whose eyes are like fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I'm a holy God and I desperately want you to come to repentance. So I'm using everything possible, even suffering, to woo you back unto me. Could all this have been avoided? Yeah. How had she repented? Repentance is a glorious thing. Oh, it's so beautiful. I mean, you repent and God showers grace upon you and blessing upon you. You repent unto him. Oh, it's wonderful. It's glorious. Now, Jesus does say that not everybody there um, has fallen prey to Jezebel. So to those of you who have not fallen to her, quote-unquote, deep secrets, hear the sarcasm of Jesus. She had said, if you come and do this with me, if you come and listen to me, if you come and follow my teaching, I will lead you into deeper secrets of God. I will lead you into the deeper things of God. Whenever anybody tells you they're going to lead you into deeper things of God, just run as fast as you can. It is only the Spirit of God that leads you to deeper truth, all right? So if somebody else stands up and says, hey, you follow me, you pay me $19.95, you do this, you do that, you give me this, give me that, I will reveal to you deeper secrets of God. Run from the Jezebel, all right? Got that? That was free of charge, okay? But run from the Jezebel. Jesus says some of you have not fallen prey and uh, fallen to the deep secrets of Satan, so I'm not going to put any extra burden on you. But this is what I'm going to tell you, Jesus says. Hold on to what you have until I come. Hold on to what you have until I come. That word hold means to cling. It means to adhere. It means to clutch. Hold on like super glue. Adhere to what you have. I've been told a conviction is not something you hold, but something that holds you. 
What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, you clutch to the Christ that clutches you. You hold on to the holy God who is holding on to you. Hold on to what you have until I come. Hold on to the gospel until I come. I want you to hold on to the reality that Jesus is the Son of God. I want you to hold on, Jesus says, to your knowledge that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through him. I want you to hold on to your belief that this is the infallible word of God. I want you to hold on to the peace that passes all understanding. I want you to hold on to the joy this world cannot take away. I want you to hold on to your passionate plea for purity. I want you to hold on to your tenacity about telling the story of the gospel. I want you to hold on until Jesus splits the eastern sky. I want you to hold on until Jesus shows up on the white horse. I want you to hold on until Jesus, who has a robe dipped in blood, and on that robe and on his thighs are tattooed King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I want you to hold on until Jesus comes. I want you to hold on until the trumpet calls. I want you to hold on until Jesus establishes his kingdom. I want you to hold on until you rule and reign with Christ. I want you to hold on until he escorts us into the eternal kingdom. I want you to hold on. I want I want you to hold on. I want you to hold on until Jesus comes back. Jesus says what you're going to need then is what you need right now. Hold on to the God who is holding you. Cling to the Christ that is clinging to you. Hold on to what you have until I come. What is the message to Thyatira? The message to Thyatira is simple. Jesus says, repent of sin and hold on to God. Repent of sin and hold on to God. That's the message that he gives to this church. It's a small church in a small town. Yet it's the longest correspondence that Jesus gives. It's almost as if Jesus says, hey, This is a central message out of all the letters to the seven churches. you got to get this one. You've got to get this one. And Jesus says, at this hinge of Revelation 2 and 3, don't miss it. I want you to repent of sin and hold Christ. Repent of sin and hold on to Christ. My friend... God is being gracious to you right now. Right now, we're going to have an invitation. Right now is a glorious opportunity for us to confess sin, get right with God, and cling to Christ. Don't walk out silly and stupid. Walk out refreshed, rejuvenated, united with the Lord. Repent of your sin now. Hold on to Christ now and forevermore. Heavenly Father, we give you this invitation. Spare us from just another song. Spare us from stupidity. And, O oh, Father, help us to repent of sin and cling to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.